Okay. Uh, it's Easter morning, which is a good thing. And we are going through John's Gospel. Simon has already read this chunk of John 20 to us about Easter morning. I just want to read a little bit again from verse 15. Mary is in the garden and she's crying. She is desolate. And Jesus says to her, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him. I'll get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, don't hold on to me because I've not yet returned to the father. But go instead to my brothers and tell them I'm returning to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I've seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. And then on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed, where he was injured in his death. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again and again in this passage, Jesus is referred to as the Lord. And that word, Lord, has probably lost a little bit of its meaning for us today. If we ever use the word Lord, we probably think of the House of Lords, which isn't the real seat of power in our nation, but a kind of careful, checking and balancing place. But for most of human history, Lord has simply meant the person who is in charge and can determine what will happen. We don't tend to talk about lords or lordship in that way anymore. A different phrase that we use, and which we're going to think about a little bit this morning, is this phrase. We talk about regime change. And one person, perhaps, or set of people being in charge and being replaced by somebody else or some other people being in charge. Regime change seems to be happening more and more often. There's this really iconic photo of some U.S. Marines putting uh, the stars and stripes up at Iwo Jima uh, in the approach toward the first bit of Japanese-owned territory that the American troops took, and they stuck a flag up. As you do, there's a, it's what you do when regime change happens. Here's the Argentinian flag flying in the Falklands, Malvinas, as they would say, only to be replaced again by some happy-looking... It's always the Marines, it seems. Some uh, British Marines here raising the Union flag. There have been other kinds of regime change in recent years, haven't there? I'm sure we all remember... the statue of Saddam Hussein being pulled down by the Americans. And realisation dawning, I think, for many of us at that point, that whatever was going on in Iraq, regime change had occurred. You couldn't do this without there having been a substantial and lasting shift in the power structures in that society. 
Uh, more recently, with the Arab Spring, that's where Gaddafi ended up, under the feet of the Libyan people. Now, all of these changes of regime involved violence, bloodshed, and fostered hatred for the opposing people. Much of that hatred remains. Here's another iconic image of regime change that should be in our minds, of course, this morning. The empty tomb. The empty tomb signals regime change, but in a very different way to all of those military successes. In Acts chapter 5, the apostles testified and said, the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and saviour. There was a change in the power structures that took place around Easter, the death and resurrection of Christ. Victor Hugo, the author of Les Miserables, which I can never take seriously, by the way. I mean, how, how many people have gone to see the film, Les Mis? And you, everyone who's been to see it says it's brilliant and says we should go. The problem I have with Les Mis is that when I was younger, uh, where I lived, there was a barman called Les, who was very miserable. <laughs> and so he took the obvious nickname, or rather it was imposed on him. We called him Les Miserable. And I've never been able to take Les Mis seriously since then. <laughs> Nonetheless, it's French author Victor Hugo, I know, said a whole number of very helpful and true things. And one of them was this. Revolution changes everything except the human heart. Said so that thinking particularly about the French Revolution. Revolution changes everything except the human heart. See... If revolution, for regime change, uses the violent tactics of any current regime, it will only succeed in replacing one violent regime with another. If it uses violence to overcome violence, or fear to overcome fear, or lies to overcome lies, then the revolution isn't really revolutionary. Some people have seen Jesus' death as an example of a non-violent protest against the regime of Roman law. But the resurrection shows that it was something else, that Jesus' death signaled a change of regime. I just want to explore a couple of different ways that we can understand this new regime that Jesus brought in as Lord. First of all, In this new regime, the Lord, the Lord Jesus, is the Lord of love. Jesus' death on the cross was not an ultimately pointless attempt to show love, but a purposeful and successful act. Its purpose was to extend God's love to human beings, to men and women and children, to you and me. In The letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he wrote, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering. Another apostle, John, wrote, this is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ 
laid down his life for us. And in the story of the Gospels, we read that even as Jesus was being crucified, he said, Father, forgive them. We see Jesus overflowing with love, offering forgiveness generously, even in the moment of his agony. And what the resurrection tells us, which we remember this Easter Sunday, is that God accepted that loving self-sacrifice. And so, mercy triumphs. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And that means a whole bunch of things. Here's just a couple that are really important. One thing, Jesus being the Lord of love and mercy triumphing over condemnation is that we can be friends with God. It doesn't remain for us some idea or some impersonal force like gravity. But we can be friends. We can know his love really in our lives. We can express our deepest, deepest concerns and needs to him. We can express our deepest wickedness in a prayer of confession and know that we are embraced by the one who made us. The triumph of love means that we have a friendship with God that will last for all eternity. It's amazing. This love that we receive has other consequences because it's more than enough. It's not just enough for us to be satisfied and at peace. It's more than that. God pours his love and his life into those who know him, those who are his friends, so that it overflows. There's more than enough for us and a generous overflowing to others. And therefore, it changes our human friendships, our family, and even our communities. I know someone, someone very close to me, whose marriage was a huge, huge struggle. On uh, their silver wedding anniversary, uh, she said to me, I don't know why we're doing this. There's nothing to celebrate from these 25 years. But then around that time, she sat in church service and in that context heard God say to her, you need to forgive him, your husband. (laughs) Just do it, deal with it. And go and tell him that you're sorry for everything that he holds against you and then keep your mouth shut. I think you all know that the third of those things, the keeping your mouth shut, was the hardest bit. So she did a praying, went to her husband and said, I'm sorry for all this stuff. I'm, you know, genuinely, I'm sorry. And then shut up. And he waited for the inevitable, now then! Right, let's do And it didn't come. And, you know, from that, that was now about 20 years ago, from that time on, there has been a softening and a softening and a softening and a softening. And there is now love shared and much to celebrate. 
There's an overflow of the love of God in us. It's not just enough for us to be at peace. There's more than enough that overflows to change things that are around us. Uh, back in the autumn, when we, we had a 24-hour event here for leaders of our missional communities, and the speaker was a guy called Ali Kay, who comes nowadays from Derby, and helps run street pastors in Derby. I don't know if you've come across street pastors, but it's basically a bunch of Christians who have found that the love of God in them is so much that they need to find some way of expressing that for the good of their community, and have found that one thing you can do is get out on a Friday and Saturday night in the early hours in the city centre and find people whose drunkenness might lead them to injury and help them, help them get home safely, help people who might be starting arguments to do a wiser thing and avoid bloodshed, you know, reduce the number of people going to A&E on a weekend. And Ali is involved with that. They've been out on the streets weekend after weekend in Derby for some time. Then there was one place in Derby where there was a real friction between that everybody else seemed to just love what they offered because it was selfless support, offer of help. There's one particular nightclub, a place called Curzons, uh, the, gay, the main gay nightclub in the city, where because they were Christians, it was kind of complicated, and they were not really welcome, and their help wasn't really wanted until one night... Some thug came past, stabbed one of the gay guys queuing up to get into the club and left him bleeding to death in the street. And it so happened that one of the street pastors that night was a GP who had so much love in him that it had taken him out onto the streets in the early hours and so he was there and able to use his skills to save that guy's life. The fruit of that was a complete change in the relationship between the street pastors as a whole and the gay community. In fact, one of Ali's uh, challenges to work out in the last couple of years is that he's been invited to join in the Gay Pride March as a friend of the gay community and as a leader of an inter-church Christian mission in the city, and that's a slightly complicated thing for him to know what to do. He phoned round all of the leaders of churches who supported him and said, what do I do? And to a person, they said, do it. We need to show love to a community that has not seen this love that we have from God, who do not see clearly that the Lord Jesus... They didn't say all of this, I'm preaching now. That the Lord <laughs> Jesus... Well, they might have said it, because you, know you know what pastors are like. The Lord Jesus is the Lord of love. And for people to understand him properly, they need to see his love. This new regime established at Easter all those years ago is about love. It's also about life, isn't it? Where is all of these other regime changes happen through inflicting death on others and end in the number of people you can count up who died? At Iwo Jima, it was about 30,000 men died. 
for the change in ownership of that island to take place. The amazing thing about the Easter story is that Jesus' death wasn't the end. That's just on Friday. And here we are on Sunday, knowing that Jesus was raised to new life. Resurrection proves that Jesus is the Lord of love, but also that he is master over death, and therefore Lord of life. In Romans, the letter that Paul wrote to the Romans, in chapter 6, says, We know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. And so Jesus now offers us happy immortality. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul wrote in the same letter to the Romans. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. Death is not the end. This story of Easter, this life after death, it's not based on wishful thinking, by the way. It's not that someone thought, what kind of story do we need to cheer people up and motivate good citizenship? Oh, this one works. This is an event of history. If you take the time to read different theories that people have come up with to explain the empty tomb, you'll quickly discover that the idea that Jesus was raised from the dead is the least weird explanation for the reality of the early church. Here's some of the other slightly stranger ones put out by mainstream theologians. One idea was that a bear came along and stole the body. It's hard to understand who would have taken it. The disciples, if they'd taken it, it's very hard to understand how just after that they were prepared to give their lives for what they knew to be a lie. It was totally not in the Romans' interest for the body to be taken, especially for the centurion in charge. As many of you may know, if the centurion failed in his duty of killing the person scheduled for execution, he'd be killed in their place. That's the strong... It's the opposite of performance-related pay, isn't it? (laughs) I don't know quite what you call that. You wouldn't get away with that under... EU employment law, that's for sure. So he and the soldiers with him were highly motivated to make sure not only that Jesus was dead, but there was continuing proof of his being dead. And the other people who had power in that time were the religious authorities who ran the temple and the Pharisees with them. And when people stepped forward saying, This Jesus has risen from the dead. It was totally in their interest. If they'd moved the body somewhere to say, oh, no, 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 look, here's the decaying corpse. It's hard to understand not how just how the tomb got empty, but how it stayed empty and the body had gone. So someone said, maybe a bear stole the body. And even more interesting, sort of 20th century kind of explanation, I suppose, is someone saying that actually Jesus never really existed, that Jesus was the code name for a hallucinogenic mushroom. (laughs) 
And uh, this is, again, this is like mainstream theology amongst people who don't want to accept that the resurrection took place and are looking for a better explanation. Takes you funny places. But the real clincher behind why we believe that Jesus is alive today is because we've met him. You don't meet dead people in the way, (laughs) at all in fact, in the way that we have met the Lord Jesus. When we've experienced the love of God, the life of God and his touching our lives, we know that he is alive today. And his resurrection means that we can expect change in the regimes that control our lives. I'd just like to try and grab your attention, if I can, at this point, because I think this is where the Easter story has to land for us this morning. His resurrection means that we can expect a change in the regimes that control our lives. It's not only a historic event for us to celebrate But its reality means that there is now a growing kingdom of God which is sweeping the earth and breaks into our lives. And so the regimes that control us, whether they're ones that we've made ourselves or ones that others have imposed on us, ones that are just endemic in our community, they're subject to change, to good and positive change. Like many of you, I know people who've made Jesus Lord of their life and have experienced a change, a regime change, away from alcoholism, away from compulsive sexual activity, away from living beyond their means, away from panic attacks, away from all kinds of sin and sickness and trouble and anxiety as the living Lord Jesus has touched their lives. Bev and I on Friday evening were on Skype. Well, no, Skype didn't work. Some of you may have experienced that. We were on the phone to friends who've moved to Wales a few years ago. In the last few weeks, they've seen three of their friends become Christians. They've been up to half 12 at night, one night a week, talking through. This is a, you know, it's a good discussion group when you can't get them out the door, don't you? And they've been coming round and staying till half 12 and talking things through. Three women have found new life in Christ. One of them was forever weeping. A woman with an incredibly tender heart and deeply touched by every trouble that she saw in anyone's life. She's working in a primary school and every time a child would graze its knee, sobbing with... Oh, how are you? And let alone the troubles of the world. Now, there's something good in all of that, but you can't live that way, can you? And so her life was not on an even keel. She's learned that God answers her prayers and seen evidence of God answering her prayers. And the compassion remains, but the things, it doesn't control her. Anymore, She knows that God is in control and her compassion is finding its right place. One prayer that she's seen answered is for her sister who'd spent some time trying to conceive. Very, a sister very anti-church, anti-God. They met up 
she said to her sister, I've just started praying in this last week for you and your desire to have children. She said, I fell pregnant this week. She's seeing answers to prayer and seeing that God's in charge and it's changing everything. There's a change of regime that's going on. I'm about to finish. And we're going to finish with a prayer that we can pray together. We've been thinking this morning about Jesus being Lord and about his resurrection. In that same letter to the Romans, Paul writes, if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, those two things this morning, lordship and resurrection, if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what will happen? You'll be saved. You'll be saved. Which is probably a the New Testament word, really, for regime change. Salvation comes. That which was beyond our capacity to change, that which held us fast, we are saved from it and brought into a place of new love and life. So just going to put a prayer up here and give you a moment to have a look at it. And then I'm going to pray aloud, invite you to pray with me if you will. You may never have prayed a prayer like this before, in which case today could be an incredible day for you as you encounter the life of God for the first time. Many of you will have prayed prayers like this many times over. And as we just take a moment to be quiet, I'd like to invite you just to acknowledge before God where you need to see a change of regime for the kingdom of God, the lordship of Christ, to come into your life where you don't have power to change what has to change, but there's resurrection power available to us to see God change what only he can. So let's take a moment to be quiet, and then I'll invite all of us, if we will, to pray this prayer together.